0: As we are in this portion of uh, Luke's Gospel, we are probably in the last uh, month, perhaps even the last weeks of the ministry of Jesus at this time. He is currently walking with his disciples uh, from the northern part of the region or land of Israel called the Galilee, down through the various villages southward, making his way towards Jerusalem, where ultimately he will take up the cross, and lay down his life, uh, which was the primary purpose of uh, his coming in the first place. But where we find him now is on that road, moving closer towards Jerusalem, and we're hearing the teachings that he's giving along the way. And we pick it up in verse 20, and it tells us there, it says that when he was demanded of the Pharisees when the kingdom of God should come, He answered them and said, the kingdom of God cometh not with observation or by outward appearance or with outward appearance. Neither shall they say, lo here or lo there, for behold, the kingdom of God is within you. And that is a bad translation in the King James. Uh, What it really is, is in your midst. Jesus was not saying to the Pharisees uh, that you, the kingdom of God is within you, uh, some kind of a new age op, uh, Oprah um, type uh, of thing. But what we have here going on is that we have this, this interesting um, interaction that is taking place between Jesus and the Pharisees, which were the primary opponents of the ministry of Jesus. And the reason why this uh, particular exchange is taking place between Jesus and his adversaries is because the rumors are, are, are flying about that this Jesus of Nazareth that is doing these miracles and moving this way, that he is in fact the Messiah or the promised anointed one, the deliverer that was promised of old that would come. And that's the rumor that's surrounding him and the claims that he is making. But that rumor is not lining up or coming into alignment with their expectation of what the Messiah or the Deliverer or the Savior should be. In their mind, they were expecting someone that would look a whole lot more like David in the way that he would make conquests and overthrow the yoke of those that were oppressing Israel in those days. And that his splendor would be a whole lot more like Solomon, that he would come in glory and in pomp. And so the rumor that this is the Messiah was not in alignment with their expectation of what he was. And so now being fed up with the fact that these rumors are going and yet it doesn't seem like this is what they wanted, they now ask the question and it says that they demanded of him. So there's kind of a cornering of him with this question and they say tell us when will the kingdom come that is if you are a king the messiah and you've come to set up the kingdom then tell us when that will be now the problem with the pharisees is that they had completely misunderstood what it was that jesus had come to do and the way that he had come to set up his kingdom and that's why there was a misalignment between their expectation and what they were experiencing And so they give to him now this question, when will the kingdom of God come? And the answer that Jesus gives to them is not the answer that they were looking for, what they wanted to hear. He says that the kingdom of God is coming. In fact, it is even here now, but it does not come by outward observation. But rather you must understand that the kingdom of God is coming and that it is in fact in your midst. Now, what does Jesus mean by that? If you think for just a moment what it takes to have a kingdom, there really are two elements that you need in order to have a kingdom. The first of those elements is that, first of all, you have to have a constitution. There's got to be some ideals that surround what that kingdom is. Second of all, there's got to be a government, something that enforces or makes that constitution live in the lives of its citizens. And then number three, of course, you need citizens. You can't have a kingdom if you don't have people to be in that kingdom. Now, that whole first element of what a kingdom is made up of is, for all intents and purposes, invisible. It has nothing to do with infrastructure or lands. There's no palace. There's no borders. There's nothing that you place upon a map. All of those things are kind of an invisible thing that make up the substance of what a kingdom is. The second element in a kingdom, of course, then would be the borders and the infrastructure. But borders and infrastructure without a constitution, a government and citizens is just land. It doesn't mean anything. And so what Jesus is saying is that my establishing of the kingdom of God in my first coming doesn't have much at all to do with the glory and the pomp of the kingdom that will be when the glory of that kingdom is revealed. But what I've come to do is establish that kingdom in its constitution in its government and in building its citizens or bringing its citizens into the the, the constitution of that kingdom. The constitution of the kingdom of God is the new covenant and the word of God. That's what the constitution is, what makes it up. It's what makes it live. The government of the kingdom of God is singular. It's a theocracy. It's King Jesus himself and all other things fall in under that. And the citizens of that kingdom are those that come under his lordship and that give themselves to the constitution of the new covenant and the word of God by being born again into the family of God. Now, once a person does that, the kingdom of God is now alive on the earth, even if there's no borders and infrastructure to speak of. It's a kingdom that exists in an invisible way. And so what Jesus came to establish in his first coming was not the glory of the kingdom that will be when his glory is revealed, but it's the kingdom that lives and moves in his people, in us right now. And so here's what you have. You have two kingdoms coexisting at the same time on the planet earth as we speak. You have what the Bible calls the kingdom of this world, which was fallen or or yielded under Adam to Satan, that it constitutes everything that we know and are familiar with. And then you have what's called the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, or what Jesus called the kingdom of God. And that exists at the same time. And you and I have been called out of citizenship from the world and called into citizenship within his kingdom. But Jesus came in his first coming to establish that kingdom, the kingdom of God living here. Now we are, in a sense, foreigners living abroad. We are citizens of heaven, But we're living in a world that's not our own, fully citizens of heaven. And so Jesus tries to explain to the Pharisees that, hey, you've got the concept all wrong. In my first coming, I didn't come to establish the glory and pomp of David and Solomon that you're expecting. It's an inner kingdom. It's a working of my Holy Spirit coming and building my church upon the world. But then Jesus turns his attention to to his disciples in verse 22, and he begins to talk to them about it, knowing that they would have questions concerning the same thing. They all thought that he was gonna do the same thing. We're going to Jerusalem, and there he's gonna overthrow Herod and Pilate and all of our adversaries, and we're gonna see the kingdom of God established. And so now Jesus turns to them, and he explains concerning his first coming. He says this, he says, the days will come when you desire to see one of the days of the son of man and you shall not see it. In other words, there's going to be a departure. I'm going to be leaving you. It's something that he's tried to tell them and he will yet tell them again and something that they still can't understand. What he's letting them in on is that there's going to be a span of time that exists between my first coming when I set up The invisible part of my kingdom, it's people, it's government, it's constitution. And my second coming, when the observable part of my kingdom is then revealed, there's going to be a space of time. Days will come when you will long for one of the days of the son of man, but you will not see it. Now, can anyone here say amen to that? You long for one of the days of the son of man. How many of us have longed that we could have been on earth with Jesus and heard his words and seen what he did ourselves? I've longed for that. And many a day I long for his return, for the days when he will bring all things to pass and all things will be completed. We long for those days. Romans tells us that we groan, that the the creature groans in earnest expectation, waiting for the manifestation of the sons of God. And there's something in us as we see the the corruption of the world around us that we groan waiting for it. And Jesus says, there's going to be a gap of time. But then he says in verse 23, that they shall say to you, see here or see there. He says, go not after them nor follow them. For as the lightning that lighteneth out of the one part under heaven shines unto the other part under heaven, so also the son of man shall be in his day. He's saying, understand this, that as you're waiting for my return in that span of time while I'm gone, know that you will not need to be told when my kingdom does arrive in its visible form. It will be quite obvious to you. Just like lightning that shines in one side of town is seen on the other, You will know it full well. You won't need to have someone tell you, come here and see it. But the good news is that Jesus is giving is that there will be a day when the kingdom of God does come with observation. That though it isn't coming in his first coming that way, there is a day when it will be revealed and we will be partakers of it. But notice what Jesus says must happen first in verse 25. He says, but first must he suffer many things and be rejected of this generation. Now that can be a very easy verse to overlook or just pass over and get into what Jesus says next. You know, the real exciting stuff concerning his second coming. But really the most important verse in this whole passage is verse 25. Because unless Jesus first suffers many things and is rejected of this generation, then there can be no citizens of the kingdom of heaven to speak of. And if you have no citizens, then you have no kingdom, even if you are a king. And if it wasn't for the rejection and the suffering that Jesus accomplished upon the cross, then there would be no one ever anywhere that would be qualified to become citizens of that kingdom of God. It's only through the blood of Christ that we can be a part of his kingdom at all. And so it was necessary that first he would suffer and die, And then his kingdom would be established, which it was on the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit came and 3,000 souls were added to the church that day. The kingdom of God in its invisible form was formulated or created, brought to bear upon the world. And it has been in that way ever since. Now, after talking to them about his first coming and talking to them about the interim that will take place between his first coming and his second coming, what Jesus does now between verse 26 all the way through verse 8 of chapter 18 into the next chapter, what he does is he answers four questions that everyone who's sitting there will have concerning the second coming of jesus christ and the establishing of his kingdom and so jesus doesn't wait to be asked when he will come the second time probably because they didn't understand at all what he was talking about (laughs) and they didn't know that they should ask that but he answers four questions concerning the second coming the first question that he answers which is the big one that everyone would have then and everyone does have now and that question is when when is it that you're going to appear the second time and the observable part of your kingdom is revealed that thing that we groan for and wait for and so he answers that question beginning in verse 26 and notice what he says he says and as it was in the days of noah so shall it be also in the days of the son of man the days that he'll be revealed they did eat they drank, they married wives, they were given in marriage until the day that Noah entered into the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, also as it was in the days of Lot, they did eat, they drank, they bought, they sold, they planted, they builded. But the same day that Lot went out of Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. And here's the answer. Even thus, shall it be in the day when the son of man is revealed? When will Jesus return? Lord, when are you gonna come back? When is the second coming gonna happen? He doesn't give them a day. He doesn't give them an hour, but he gives them a sign. He tells them there's something that they can watch for and compare with their day so that they can be ready when it comes. And so what Jesus does is he gives two stories from Old Testament scripture, which are essentially one in the same. It's one story that's repeated uh, in two different instances. The first he reaches into concerns Noah, the one who built the ark. And the story is from Genesis chapter six. The second concerns Lot in the days that he was in Sodom. And the story is given to us in Genesis chapter 19. And both of those stories have four things in common. Number one is that there was a place where the moral climate was defined as wickedness. With Noah, it was the whole planet. And with Lot, it was just the city of Sodom. But there was a place where the moral climate was total filth and evil. Number two is that there was a situation where there was righteous people living alongside wicked people. In the days of Noah, that was Noah and his family. In the days of Lot, that was Lot and his family, or at least some of his family that were righteous. And then the rest of the citizens uh, were the wicked. The third uh, thing that you have is that the righteous in both stories are removed. Noah is removed by being put in the ark. God shuts the door and he's separated from the rest of the world and insulated there. And in the story of Lot, an angel actually goes into Sodom, takes him by the hand, says, I can't do anything until you're taken out and literally has to yank him out of Sodom with only uh, his wife and his two daughters. Um, and we're gonna find out what happened to his wife in just a minute, it didn't fare so well for her. But he pulls them out. And so the righteous are removed. And then number four in both stories, the removal of the righteous makes way for the judgment of God to come. And so you have a moral climate of evil. You have a situation where the righteous are living alongside the wicked. The righteous are removed so that judgment then can fall upon the wicked. And then how Jesus applies that to the question is that this is what it will be like in the days when the son of man is revealed. And so here's what Jesus is saying to every generation of the church age that wants to know when will Jesus come back. He's saying that you can do this. You can line up the conditions of the world in Noah's day. And then you can put in that line also the condition of the world in the days of Lot. And you'll find that they're very much the same. And then you can evaluate the conditions of your own day the days in which you are living in. And when you see those three things come into alignment, the days of Noah, the days of Lot, and the days that you are living in, then that's a very good time to be expectant for the second coming of Jesus Christ, because you're probably living in the last days. So what are the characteristics that made up Noah's day and Lot's day that we would look at in our society to to judge or discern whether or not our society looks like that of Noah and Lot. Well, without turning to those passages and examining every word of them, the Bible summarizes those days as days where wickedness was great in the earth, where the earth was filled with violence and corruption and that all flesh had corrupted their way before God. In both instances, there was sexual perversion that manifested itself in different ways. And in both instances, there was rebellion against God and his ways of righteousness without any restraint and without any respect to his person. The Apostle Paul defines it further in Second Timothy chapter 3. He adds more dimension or depth to what we can expect to see in the last days. He says in Second Timothy 3 verse 1, he says, This know also, that in the last days perilous or dangerous times shall come. thereof from such turn away isn't it interesting that he describes dangerous times or perilous times as being completely um, hinged upon what's going on in the hearts of people having nothing to do with anything else economies or you know it, it all has to do with the heart of man and he describes more fully what was taking place in the hearts and in the lives of the men and women that were citizens of the earth in the days of Noah and citizens of Sodom in the days of Lot. He says um, that that there will just be an absolute uh, level of filth that is immeasurable uh, in that. And so the first um, characteristic that we would look for in our days if we wanted to discern where we're at in relation to the second coming is that we would wanna know, are the moral conditions of our world, the world that we live in today, defined as great wickedness, corrupt, evil, violent, sexually perverse, and a general attitude of rebellion without restraint against God. The other attribute that Jesus gives to us that we would look at uh, as we make this evaluation for the days that we live in is something that Jesus gives us in our text that you cannot get from the texts in both Genesis 6 and Genesis chapter 19. Notice what Jesus says of all the things that he could say to qualify the days of Noah and Lot. Notice what he says. Look again at verse 27. He says, uh, concerning the days of Noah, they did eat, they drank, they married wives, they were given in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and then the flood came. And then likewise in verse 28 concerning uh, Sodom. It says they did eat, they drank, they bought, they sold, they planted, and they build it. You say, well, there's absolutely nothing wrong with any of those things. I mean, people do that every day. Those are biblical things. We're supposed to get married. That's a good thing. It's the people that aren't getting married. That's the problem. So why is Jesus bringing this up in terms of a relationship with those days and our days in a means of comparison? Here's why because the general attitude of those that lived in those days was one of total absolute apathy to the wickedness that was going on all around them. That the citizens that were living in those societies had become so calloused to the level of wickedness that to them it just seemed like life as normal. Like the, everything is just continuing like it always has. We're not right for the judgment of God. We don't deserve the judgment of God. We don't expect the judgment of God. We're just living our lives. Everybody's just doing their own thing. But in the process of wickedness eroding God's righteousness in a society is that apathy had set in even in the hearts of those that weren't necessarily on the outer fringes of wickedness. And I wonder what that would look like in our world. When you compare what God defines as wickedness and sees it as wickedness with what man views as wickedness and esteems as wickedness, apathy concerning the wickedness of the day will be an attribute of those that live in the last days. Last Sunday when uh, I shared with you about the day of the Lord, I played the clip about um, the BBs hitting the tin wall. And, you know, what, a, what an incredible uh, reaction that, that, that has with us when we um, hear that in the context of how it's given and, and what it represents, you know. And then to, to, to and I don't want to relive all that again, you know. But, but here's what I want to say about it uh, in terms of this apathy uh, is this, is that when I hear that sound, And what it represents when I see the images that I spoke of concerning the uh, body parts and petri dishes and all that kind of thing Here's what scares me It scares me that I don't feel it as much as I should As I I look at those things and I see the things that are going on in our society and I read the news daily And I hear about the violence and the level of corruption and, And I feel it i'm moved by it and I understand it But it scares me that I don't feel it more And it scares me to think that i'm not feeling it as much as I should be feeling it And I think that one of the byproducts of living in a society that's wicked is that we can easily become calloused to what that wickedness is and what that wickedness represents in the heart and in the mind of God. And Jesus says that that's going to be an attribute of the last days is that not only will there be wickedness in the moral climate of the world, but there'll be a general sense of apathy to that wickedness and people won't even recognize it for what it is. And so those are the characteristics of comparison that Jesus gives that we're to put into alignment to check where we are at with the Lord. And so as we think about that and move forward, the next question that Jesus answers that would be the next question that they would have, and I hope it's the next question that we would have, is how is it that we should then be prepared for the coming of the Lord? If it's something that will be a great way off and it's something that we don't know when exactly it will happen, then what is to be our mentality or our method through which we're prepared for that day when it comes? Notice what Jesus says in verse 31. He says, in that day, he which shall be upon the housetop and his stuff in the house, and that's the way they lived in those days. They had flat roofs and the housetop was the equivalent of our porch or deck. He says, let him not come down to take it away. And he that is in the field, let him likewise not return back. And so I don't know if you've ever done this, but I do this from time to time because I'm normal is that I think, what would I do if I ever woke up in the middle of the night and my house was on fire? Uh, what would be my course of action? And you know, you kind of rehearse, okay, where are the kids? Where's the exit? How do we get out? And then I think, okay, well, if the fire started on the other side of the house, what would I have time to grab? You know, I don't want to go to the DMV. I want the motor vehicle records. I don't want to go to all the, I want the birth certificates. I, You know, and I think, where are these things? And I go through in my mind and I think about where are the most valuable things, the photographs, the computer, you know, the things that I can try to save if I have time in case of a fire. And what Jesus is saying here is that when that time comes and however that um, call is made and we are asked to respond to it, the reaction that we're to have is immediate dismissal from all things in this life. And the only way that we can be ready for immediate dismissal for all things in this life is if we have that mentality every moment of this life. In other words, in order for us to be prepared for the coming of the Lord, it means that we need to be uprooted at all times and ready to leave this world behind in every way and do it in a hurry. You think of how the angel snatched Lot out of Sodom. Well, in order to do that, in order to be detached or uprooted from this world in my heart in principle, then that means that I have to sever my affections for the things in this world. Notice what Jesus says next in verse 32. It's the second shortest verse in the New Testament. He says, remember Lot's wife. It's a very stern warning spoken very softly and in only a very few words. Remember Lot's wife. And I know some of you here tonight are saying, what happened to Lot's wife? (laughs) When Lot was carried out of Sodom by the angel who said, judgment is coming and I cannot do it until you are taken out because God does not destroy the righteous along with the wicked. It says that as Lot and his wife were fleeing Sodom, carried by the hand of the angel, it says that Lot's wife turned around and looked back. And the idea is that she looked back longingly. It wasn't just curious to see if someone was following or someone was chasing. There's nothing wrong with that. The idea is that her heart was still rooted in Sodom and though she was leaving it in her bodily presence, her heart was still fixed and rooted there. She loved the place that she lived and longed to be there and didn't wanna see it destroyed. And the result of that look back, the Bible says that she was instantly, immediately turned into a pillar of salt. It resulted in her destruction. And the reason why she was destroyed is because her affections were rooted in Sodom. That it wasn't that she was a citizen living there, but her heart was somewhere else in the things of God. But she was not only living there as a citizen, but her heart was entwined with it as well. And when the call came to leave, she couldn't part with it because her affections were in it. And thus, if we're to be ready for the Lord's return as citizens of heaven, waiting for the manifestation of heaven, then it is absolutely necessary that we be ready to go on the drop of a dime And that every affection and love that we have for the things in this world be already severed even now so that at that moment we are ready to go with him. And then Jesus sums that up by saying, whosoever shall seek to save his life shall lose it and whosoever shall lose his life shall preserve it. So the answer of how to be prepared for the coming of the Lord is to be ready to go right now on the drop of a dime without looking back and without having any reservation at all in doing that. Well, the next question that any thinking person would have uh, concerning this concept of his second coming and the establishing of his kingdom is what exactly is going to happen when Jesus returns? What's that day gonna look like? And so Jesus graciously answers that question next again without being asked in verse 34. He says, I tell you in that night, There shall be two men in one bed. And that's two people, two humans. But in the context of the days, there might be two men in one bed, um, but it won't be happening according to what Jesus is going to say. It says, the one shall be taken and the other shall be left. Two women shall be grinding together, grinding out the morning meal, grinding wheat together in the morning. The one shall be taken and the other shall be left. And two men shall be in the field, the one shall be taken and the other is going to be left. The very first thing that strikes us as we consider the the question of what exactly is gonna happen in that day is that you must understand that it's going to happen in a very singular moment. Do you notice in the text that at the same time, at the same moment, there are two people in bed asleep, two women grinding out the morning meal and two men working in the field in the heat of the day. Interesting, isn't it that jesus knew that the world was round He knew that somewhere on the planet would be the middle of the night where well where in somewhere else it would be Uh the middle of the day and somewhere else it would be the morning But there's going to be an interruption and at one particular moment There are people that are going to be affected by this and here's what's going to happen He says that one is going to be taken And another is going to be left When that time comes, just like it was in the days of Noah and in the days of Lot. Noah was placed inside the ark and it says that God shut the door. Lot was grabbed by the hand and snatched out of Sodom, taken out because the word was that God does not destroy the righteous with the wicked. And so in the day that Jesus Christ is revealed, the righteous that are citizens of the kingdom of God that are dispersed abroad throughout the whole world will be taken out, paving the way then for the judgment of God to fall upon all that remains in the world that is left, that is ungodly and that is sinful. Understand what Jesus is saying to us here. He's saying that there is going to be a generation of Christians that will not die a natural death. There is going to be a time that it's going to happen upon the earth, that people will be taken up that didn't die. Jesus said it the first time in John chapter 11, when he was talking to Mary and Martha about being the resurrection and the life, a verse that all of us are familiar with. When, when, when Lazarus was dead and Jesus raised him again and Martha was sobbing, saying, Jesus, you could have saved him. The words of Jesus to her were these in verse 24 of Matthew 11 or John 11. It says that Jesus said unto her, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And then in verse 26, he says this, and whosoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Believest thou this? In other words, when the day of resurrection comes, those that have died will rise. They will live again. But those that live and believe in me at that time will never die, but they will be resurrected while they yet live upon the earth. The apostle Paul discusses it in first Corinthians chapter 15, verse 51, talking again about the resurrection and teaching the Christians about resurrection life. He says, behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, and that word means die. It was King James for die. We will not all die, but we shall all be changed, transformed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, trumpet, for the trumpet shall sound and the dead shall be raised incorruptible and we, that is those that are alive, shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. We will be caught up and we will receive at that time new and glorified bodies. We're waiting for an upgrade. Paul would say it to the Thessalonian church in this way in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 15. He says, for this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them which are asleep, or those that have died. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain, that's those that are living at that time, shall be caught up, taken up together with them in the clouds, To meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. And so, what the Bible teaches is that when Christ is revealed, in the day when his kingdom is to be revealed, that what will take place is upon the earth is that God will first remove those that are righteous or those that are in Christ, those that are citizens of his kingdom, paving the way for judgment to then come upon uh, the rest of the world. Now, The Bible teaches that that catching up or that moment that God will take us away, that that will precede the judgment of God that is to come. And here's why. Because in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 9, Paul still on the same theme, talking about the second coming, he says this. He says, for we are not appointed unto wrath. And what God is going to do during the last seven years of human history upon this earth is that he's going to pour out wrath upon a world that has been given over to wickedness, to great evil, to corruption, to perversion, and general rebellion, and uh, irregard to God and what he wants uh, for their lives. And so that's what God's going to do. But before he does that, he's going to pull out those that he has declared righteous And those that are declared righteous are not those that are better than other people. It's those that have put their faith in Jesus Christ and are trusting Him for their salvation and they've become citizens of heaven based upon the terms of the new covenant. It's by grace, through faith, the free gift of God. In Revelation chapter three, verse 10, Jesus talking to the church in Philadelphia, the church that represents the last day's church. Jesus says this. He says, because you have kept the word of my patience, I also will keep you from the hour of temptation or tribulation that comes upon the whole earth to try them that dwell upon the face of the earth or to purge them out. One of the strongest assurances that I have that Jesus will come prior to the rapture or prior to the tribulation and rapture his church out of the world is the very passage that we are studying in Luke tonight. That when Jesus says that it will be like it was in the days of Noah and the days of Lot, and then he describes those days as being days when they marry and are given in marriage, where they build, where they plant, where they sow, where they reap, where they go on as, with life as usual all the way up until the day that either Noah enters the ark or that Lot is taken out of the Sodom. And then the same day that they're taken out, judgment comes upon the earth. And here's my point in this. When I talk I'm talking pre reason why we know we'll be taken out before the judgment comes, is that God does not destroy the righteous with the wicked, and He says it will be life as usual all the way up to that point, just like it was for Noah, just like it was for Lot, and if God allows His bride, and think about how crazy that is, to go through His judgment. It absolutely will not be life as usual up to the moment where one is taken and one is left uh, behind. If you don't know Jesus Christ personally and you're here tonight, you will not be taken in the rapture uh, of the church that's coming. Well, he answers a question um, in verse 37 that they might have been asking as a very obvious answer. He says this, it says that they answered and they said unto him, where Lord? Where is it going to take place that one will be taken and, and one will be left? And the answer of Jesus is this. It says, he said unto them, wheresoever the body is or the carcass is, thither will the eagles be gathered together. Now I confess that's a tough verse, but here's what I think Jesus is saying. He's saying this. He's saying that just like anywhere where there's a dead body, you can expect to see ravens and birds of prey. So also wherever there is a Christian, there's going to be, A rapture people are going to be taken and the reason i believe jesus uses this illustration of a raven to the carcass is because once the christians are removed from the world that's all that will be left is nothing but death and filth and it will be for the birds jesus said in the sermon on the mount he said that salt or you are the salt of the earth the christians you and i the salt preserves but he says but if the salt loses its savor then it, and that is the world, that's what's being salted. He says, then it is good for nothing than to be cast out and trodden underfoot of men. And once the salt of the earth is removed, then there'll be nothing left of the earth than a carcass that is left and ripe for judgment. Well, the final question that Jesus answers concerning his second coming, he answers in the first eight verses, and we'll do those and go no further tonight. And the question would be, and I hope it's a question that you and I might have uh, maybe even more than they would have. The question is, how is it that when you're living in a world that's falling apart to that level that you maintain hope and that you hold on to your faith in Jesus Christ and don't get swept up in the current of that wickedness? And so Jesus goes on and realized that the chapter breaks were not there uh, in his day. He didn't say chapter break. You know, he's continuing with the same exhortation. It says that he spoke a parable unto them to this end, that men ought always to pray and not to faint. Now, the context of what he's about to say is what he just said. The intent of the parable is given. He says that men ought always to pray and the reason why men are always to pray is so that they don't grow faint-hearted in the midst of all the things that will be going on in the world in those days. The word faint that Jesus uses there, it means to become discouraged. It means to become weary or tired. It means to despair. It means to lose heart. And it is amazing how easy it is to lose heart in a world that's filled with wickedness uh and and, and when you're trying to live a a life that's righteous before the lord and so he tells them this parable so that they wouldn't grow hopeless uh, while they're waiting he says in verse two saying here's the parable there was in a city a judge which feared not god neither regarded man now that's a bad judge You don't wanna stand before that judge. A judge is supposed to fear God because he's gonna give an account for the judgments that he's making. And you want him to like people because you want him to be just and fair. But this guy's neither of those things. He doesn't fear God. He doesn't care about man. And so what you have is you have a very bad man and he's in a very good position. Then verse three, and there was a widow in that same city. And she came unto him saying, avenge me of mine, Adversary. So now, on the way opposite end of this uh, governing and lifestyle spectrum, you have a widow, and she would be at the very bottom. This woman is destitute. She's lost everything that she has, and now she's been ripped off by someone who is her adversary. And there's no one to speak for her, so she has to go to this judge, hoping that she can find an advocate to help her in her need at this time of her life. And so, what you have here is you have a helpless woman in a very bad position. So a bad man in a good position and a helpless woman in a very bad position asking to be avenged of her adversary. Jesus says, here's how the drama unfolds. Verse four, it says, and he would not for a while, didn't care about this woman or what her need was or her situation. But afterward, he said within himself, Though I fear not God, nor regard man, at least he was honest, yet because this widow troubles me, I will avenge her, lest by her continual coming, she weary me. So this judge makes a decision after seeing this woman on several occasions that this woman is gonna drive me out of my mind or her story will be picked up by those that will run against me in the next term and they'll use it as a smear campaign that I don't help widows. In some way, it's gonna come back on me that I didn't help this woman. And so not because I care about her and not because I fear God, but simply because her face has become popular around here, I am going to now help this woman. And here's what the judge is saying here. He's saying that because of this woman's persistence, I am going to help her in her case against her adversary. And so now Jesus takes that parable of this persistent woman. And this is a parable about persistence and he applies it. And he says, and the Lord said, verse six, hear what the unjust judge says and shall not God avenge his own elect?'" which cry day and night unto him, though he bear long with him. Now understand something here. What Jesus is not saying here in this context is that God is a bad judge that doesn't care about you. So if you expect to get something done through heaven's court and see its results played out on earth, then you better raise your voice because you've got a whole lot of reluctance that you've got to overcome if you want God to move on your behalf. That's not what Jesus is saying. This is a parable of contrast. He's saying, if a judge who is unjust that doesn't regard man or fear God will help a woman on no other basis than the fact that she comes to him continually, then how much more shall God, who is not an unjust judge, who the Bible says that he is the righteous judge, who the Bible says that he keeps his own, his people, citizens of his kingdom, as the apple of his eye who the Bible says that not one hair from our head falls to the ground without him knowing about it. That changes daily, which means that he's daily taking an account of where we are at and what's going on within our lives. He's altogether aware of it. So God is not like this unjust judge, is what he's saying. Also in the parable, you have a woman who is a widow. She's destitute. She has nothing. She has no advocate. She has no one to help her. She has no voice in this world. She's got nothing to stand upon, nothing. That is the complete opposite of the position that you and I are in when we come to God. We are not a widow that's coming to God destitute, begging for him to do something because we have no claim. No, the Bible says that we are the bride. We're the bride of Christ, Ephesians chapter five. Paul said that the church is the bride. We're his, we're beautified. He loves us, he's for us. The Bible says, if God didn't spare his own son, but freely gave him up, how much more will he not freely now give us all things? Romans chapter five says that we have access by grace into this faith wherein we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. The Bible says that we can come boldly before the throne of grace to obtain help in our time of need. The Bible says he that keeps us doesn't slumber or sleep. And so we're not a widow that's destitute and has no rights. We're the very bride of Christ upon whom God has placed all of his promises and he's given us the invitation and even the command to come and to cast our cares and our burdens upon him in this life. But here's what happens is that because we live in a world where the odds are stacked or the deck is stacked against us, a world governed by wicked men and wicked principles, Oftentimes we feel like a widow, even though we are a bride Things happen in this world because we have an adversary And that adversary sometimes does things in our lives that rip us off Every one of us here has things in our life right now that we can look at that even come to mind when I say these words Things about ourselves that we beg god constantly for because the adversary has done things in our lives Some of us dealing with issues within our families that we're pleading with God. We're saying Satan has ripped off my family and my marriage and I don't know what to do about it. Some of us in our minds, things that are going on, mental issues that we have, we say, I've been robbed. I've been, I've been taken advantage of. There's something that's happened in my life and I need to get it back. I need it to be right. And so we feel like widows because we're living in a world that is run by our adversary And so we feel estranged from the help that is ours. But here's what Jesus is saying. Is that if when you are living in this world as a bride, but feeling like a widow, if you live in that condition in a prayerless state, then you're living like a widow when you could be living like a bride. That doesn't mean that everything that we ask God for, he's gonna answer or give to us. Notice what Jesus says in honesty in verse seven. He says, God will avenge his own elect, which cry day and night unto him, though he bear long with them. There are things that we deal with in this life on this side of eternity that we plead with God for, that we persistently bring before him and say, God, can you fix this? God, can you heal this? God, can you change this part of who I am or what I am or what I've done and the effects that it's had upon my life? And we pray week after week and month after month. And sometimes we don't see the answer to those prayers come. And so what the temptation is, is to lose heart. Is to say, God doesn't hear. God doesn't see. God doesn't care. And so we stop praying. And the result of that is that then we faint. We become discouraged. We become weary. We become hopeless because we've cut off communication with the Father. And here's what Jesus is telling us here. He's teaching us that that we have access to God and that though we are in a strange place, this world, and though we are away from home, he's saying that when we come to God in prayer on a consistent basis, there is insight that he desires to give to us. There's perspective that he sheds upon our circumstances and our situation. There's leading that he provides for our lives. There's protection and a covering that he gives to us while we're walking through this hostile territory. There's encouragement that comes in the form of his hand upon our lives and the comfort that comes through the comforter in the presence of his Holy Spirit with us. There's wisdom that he imparts to us so that we know how to navigate the various circumstances and situations that we find ourselves in. And there is blessing from God that is available to us right now while we're on this earth away from him. And the way that I access those things is through prayer. And Jesus is teaching us that in days where we're waiting for his return, And we see wickedness coming in and we don't understand how everything is going to play out or if these things will ever be fixed or ever be right. He's saying the answer is pray. And the answer is pray always. And if I stop praying because I become discouraged because of the things that are going on in the days that I'm living in, then I'm probably going to lose heart and I'm apt to get swept up in the current of that wickedness and the hope of his coming will be a distant hope to me the worship team can come as we close in titus chapter two the apostle paul says this concerning the second coming of jesus christ he says in verse 11 he says for the grace of god that brings salvation has appeared to all men that's the grace that's been exposed through the cross of jesus christ And that grace teaches us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, that we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. An absolute essential ingredient in our success as Christians is that we maintain a hold upon the blessed hope of the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1, the writer of Hebrews says that faith is the substance of things hoped for. In other words, our faith in Jesus Christ and in his word and the promise of his coming is the substance or the substrate or the foundation upon which our hope is built or upon which our hope stands. Faith is the substance or substrate of things that are hoped for. And if we allow that hope to be taken from us because of the wickedness that we get caught up in or because of the overwhelmingness of the darkness of the days that we live in, then we're apt to lose that hope. And once we lose that hope, No other hope matters because every hope that we have for things in this life ultimately either fade, fail, or they disappoint. The hope for things in this world cannot last and they cannot sustain us. The only hope that does is the hope that he is coming again and that when he comes, he will set things right. And so he says, pray always persistently and stay in communication with heaven in Jesus' name. Father, we thank you tonight for this word. We thank you for the things that you've spoken to us through it. We thank you for the answer to questions that you knew that we would have concerning when you would come. How can we be prepared? What's going to happen? And how can we keep from being swept up in the current of wickedness in days that are dark? And so we give you thanks tonight, Lord, that you give us insight into these things. And I pray tonight, Lord, for each one of us here, that tonight our hope would be renewed. Lord, that as we look at the things that have been taken from us by the hand of our adversary, that we would see that there's one in heaven who's stronger, who's our advocate, our bridegroom who cares and who sees. And I pray, Lord, if there's any here tonight that have become prayerless or become hopeless, I pray that tonight your love would be shed abroad in their hearts afresh by your Holy Spirit that's been given. Lord, we ask that you would give us insight and wisdom and vision for the days that we live in right now. We pray that you'd help us to see how near we are to your return, nearer than when we first believed. And we ask, Lord, that every one of us would be ready. Father, we pray that if anyone here has roots in Sodom or roots in the world as it was in Noah's day, that, Lord, you would give us the grace tonight to see what those things are and power by your Holy Spirit to cut them off and sever them. And that, Lord, if our hands are hanging down and our knees have become feeble, we ask that tonight you'd strengthen us afresh with your Holy Spirit and that you cause us to look up knowing that our redemption draws near. And, Lord, that you would be our hope because you're the author of hope. And so fill us tonight, O God. Let your Spirit be shed abroad in our hearts. Let us walk according to that blessed hope of the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And may the God of hope fill us with all hope as we continue to walk with and serve Him. In Jesus' name, Amen.